Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hiviites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The next reading is from Luke chapter 12, and we're starting at verse 1. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth men more than many sparrows. I tell you, Whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. 
My name is Wayne, and I've been a part of InnoWest for actually since its inception about five years ago. I was part of the church planning team that came together and planted this church. Um, you perhaps may not have seen me around recently. I've actually been traveling domestically around Australia for work. I've also been traveling internationally for work as well. I work for Ridley Bible College. I am a digital content producer with Ridley Bible College, the best Bible theological college in Australia. Perhaps a bit biased, but it's the truth. <laughs> so um, I've been traveling um, internationally for the last two months. We've uh, gone on a, on a study trip to Turkey. I spent one month in Turkey and one month in the UK just filming some of our online programs. And whilst in Turkey, we traveled with a uh, student study group, and we got to see all these amazing sites in Turkey, all the, the, the Bible sites from Revelation, as Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, and it really helps put the Bible in its context when you see uh, firsthand what Ground Zero actually looks like. So I was there with some students, 12 students actually, and with my boss, Tim, and Tim actually thought that it would be a nice idea to spend one week sailing down the Aegean coast uh, on, a, on a sailboat, obviously. And it would you know, sort of try and uh, mimic Paul's sailing journeys. And we thought, oh, wouldn't that be nice? We you know, could feel what Paul um, felt as he was traveling and sailing, maybe even have a shipwreck and see what it felt like, <laughs> all just to justify sailing down this beautiful, beautiful Aegean coast. So uh, we got to the week where we were sailing. We got to the marina, um, and we had two quite fairly large sailboats. Um, obviously, as part of getting on the sailboat, a lot of us actually haven't sailed before, so there was quite a detailed safety briefing before we actually took off on our journey. And so there was a lot of do's and don'ts that um, they, they, they brief you on, like, you know, you shouldn't... Um, I don't know, like you shouldn't, shouldn't stand too close to the edge, or what do you do when, you, when the man goes overboard, all these sort of safety briefings and um, safety exercises. And one, there was one particular instruction that was given to us that was very clear, uh, very succinct, and very important. And that was, when you go to the toilet, and you do a number two, you are only permitted to have to use three sheets per flush, right? So that's the rule. I, and I think, I've, I've never been in a camper van before, but I assume that's probably the same thing that you would do in a camper van. You, you wouldn't use like a whole roll of toilet paper and flush it down uh, a toilet in a camper van. So all right, you know, fine, that's acceptable. So we gone on our journey, we were sailing halfway down the Aegean coast, we're just having a really, really great time going from bay to bay, jumping off, swimming and all that sort of thing. Um, and then one of the guys, we, so we were sailing halfway, and then one of the guys on the boat, his name's Jimmy. It's not his real name, but I'm protecting his identity. <laughs> so Jimmy, so we're sitting on the deck, right? And then Jimmy all of a sudden comes up from below deck, and he comes up and he's looking all flustered, and he's like, guys, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is, I've learned how to use the flush. Because it's a manual pump flush, it's not like one of those you know, like your toilet bowl flushes where you just press the button and it just 
you know, does its thing, you have to actually manually pump it. It works exactly the same as what you would expect a toilet bowl to do, but you just have, have to manually pump the flush, <laughs> right? So no dramas there. He comes out and says, I've learned the good news is I've learned how to use the flush. The bad news is that it's stuck. And it's not just stuck, it's moving in the other direction as well. So everyone starts panicking on the board and they're like, what did you do? What, what, what did you do? What, what, like, how difficult is it to get a toilet bowl stuck? And everyone's asking the question, do you use just three sheets or do you use more than three sheets? <laughs> and then he said, oh, I thought it was just three sheets per wipe. <laughs> and then everyone was just like, what? No, that, was not, that, was, that wasn't the instructions. And in my head, I didn't actually say this out loud, in my head I was like, oh, I thought it was three sheets per visit, right? Because my wife, and she tends to complain that I use a lot at home. <laughs> and she said, you've got to reduce the amount you've got to use at home. So I thought, well, okay, three sheets, it's a bit stingy, but I thought, you know, maybe it's you wipe once and then you fold it and then you wipe again and then you fold it. So, all right, maybe, maybe three sheets does work out, could work out in the end. But it was obviously different interpretations to what the instructions were. And so my boss, Tim, he's like, oh my goodness, I told you, the instructions were so clear. And then he had to go down um, into beneath that into the toilet and he's like trying to fix the toilet. It's just like brown water just spilling around. And um, one of the guys on deck, and he's like crying, like, what am I doing here in the middle of the Aegean Sea? And then one of the other girls also just, you know, just can't, could not believe. And she said, why is it that men can't follow instructions? It's so simple. What's the point of me telling this story? Well, I think there are many things in our day-to-day -day life that, come, that comes with warning labels, right? Um, medicinal bottles. At the back of medicinal bottle, bottles, you have uh, warning labels that says, for adults, take twice a day. For children, only once a day. For everyone else, don't take this at all. Um, even our GPS systems in our cars are also warning, um, warning labels. You're driving 10 kilometers above the speed limit. Slow down, slow down, or I'll call the police. And I think the Christian life is no exception to that. The Bible gives its own set, sets of warning labels for Christians. One of which is that we are to expect opposition, and the Bible also gives us instructions to proceed life with caution as Christians. And in the instance of our passage today, Jesus warns his disciples, as with many on occasion, to beware of the hypocrisy and slander of those who oppose the, gospels, the gospel. Now, last week we heard from Campbell preaching from some, uh, his sermon from Luke 11, where Jesus faces scrutiny from the Pharisees as they were testing his interpretation of the law. But the more the Pharisees press harder in on Jesus with questions that are designed to test him and trick him, the more tense and awkward the situation becomes. You know, it's kind of like that one friend that you have who is obviously anti-Christian, anti-religious, and knows that you are a Christian, and just bombards you with questions after questions about Christianity, and you know that he or she is just not interested in knowing your perspectives on Christianity, but it's just out to stab you. Uh, just recently, I had a friend 
I, I, well, actually, I still have his, he's still a friend of mine, um, who very randomly came up to me and said, I do not trust the church. Like, it was just so random. There was no context for it. He just came up and said it straight into my face because he knew I was a Christian. Or he knows I'm a, I'm a Christian. And it was weird on a few levels. It was weird because, firstly, I, I wasn't having a conversation with him, so he was literally just photobombing my conversation, sticking his face um, in. The second reason why it was weird was because he's not a Christian, so sure, like, I, I wouldn't expect you to, to believe or trust the church. It's like as good as me saying I, I trust in the two fairy. I don't, because I don't believe in the two fairy. But the biggest reason for me why it was so weird was because as he was saying that to me in my face, I do not trust the church, he very quickly exited the conversation and ran into the toilet nearby, leaving me high and dry. And I was just wondering, like, okay, well, what do I do? Like, do I just stay here and wait for him to con continue the conversation? Do I run after him into the toilet and we'll have this great apologetic debate while in the toilet? Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. I've been in many situations like that where I've had friends test uh, my faith as a Christian. And it's not just situations like that in our own personal lives. It's also on a more mainstream level. We've seen so many cases of high-profile Christian bickering in, in our mainstream media. I don't have to, to spell it out. You know um, who they are, what the cases are. And I think situations like that are difficult because we can get caught up in the emotions. When you have a friend that's out to test your patience, your faith, and all he or she cares about is to watch you crumble under their interrogation and their scrutiny. And Jesus knows that he himself, here in this passage, is being tested by the Pharisees. And it's not just him. Even his disciples are copying some of the flake. So in verse 1, Luke says, Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Luke then gives us some incredible insights in the way Jesus responds to these highly tense situations. Jesus addresses his disciples by saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Now, I'm sure all of you know what yeast is. Um, I'm not a baking fanatic. I'm sure many of you are baking fanatics. You know what yeast does? Yeast, if you put yeast, you put yeast into a um, uh, uh, bread baking mixture. And what does the yeast do? It fluffs up the bread, right? So that it's all kawaii and cute and tasty. Um, I've tr I tried to bake bread once with a bread machine, and it failed so terribly. Because you know, like in, in, in the baking bread mixture packs, they give you, like, you know, there's this huge big pack of, um, of bread flour, and then they give you this small little tiny pack of yeast, and you're like, what, what does this do? Like, it's so small, it's so insignificant. But you know that if you don't put the yeast into the baking mixture, what happens? The bread comes out hot, right? And it's unedible, you can't eat it. You need that small pack of yeast so that it becomes all kawaii and fluffy. So what Jesus is saying here is that the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. You can't, they, they do stuff in the dark that cannot be seen. 
like the yeast flour. You don't know what it does, but eventually it comes out into the light. It fluffs up in the oven. And so Jesus says in verse 3, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the year in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops, from the roofs. In other words, Jesus is saying, beware of religious hypocrisy, because just a small pinch of their influence, like yeast, can have huge ramifications. So be on your guard that you do not be influenced by the Pharisees, that you do not become like them, because like the bread that fluffs up in God's oven, so will the concealed work of men rise up into the open. Jesus then goes on in verses 4 to 5 and says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Imagine being a disciple of Jesus in this situation, in our modern-day context. Leaders of our societies, members of parliament, governors, mayors, pastors, YouTube influencers, Instagrammers saying to you, give up your Christian faith, or if not, we will trample over you and kill you. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Yet it's not far-fetched for some Christians in the world to believe that that is their reality. And even though many of us most likely will not have to face death for our faith, I think many of us still fear men more than we fear God. We fear men because we care about what people have to say about us. We fear men because of our reputation, opportunities to succeed in life. Jesus reminds his disciples and brings them back to reality by saying, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Fear him who has authority to throw you into hell. In other words, Jesus is saying, you think you know who to fear and I'm telling you, you're fearing the wrong group of people. It is God who you should be fearing. Why? Because what men can do once your body, what can men do once they have killed you? They can't do anything. Sure, men may have power over your life in this world, but once they kill you, men do not have the power over life and death. Only Jesus has the power over life and death. And the truth is, we all have those sort of fears in our lives. And you all know it. Just as we all worship something in life, we all fear something. It's the fear of losing our jobs, our careers, the fear of missing out on opportunities, fear of not connecting into society, noble fears of worrying about your family's well-being 
what's going to happen to my family tomorrow if I don't survive today, if something happens to me tomorrow? Who's going to take care of them? Who's going to provide for them? Recently, I had a string of family members that have passed away one after the other, like a domino effect, over the last year. And it's, you know, like one, one, one death in the family, you know, it's not fine, but you know, it's manageable. But once you have three deaths, one after the other, it weighs a toll on you. It weighed a toll on me. I spend nights after night staying up, just wondering, just being anxious, fearing what the future might bring. As we get older in life, as death keeps coming ever that closer. But Jesus tells us those fears that we have in our life are pale in comparison to the fear that we should give due to God. For He is all-powerful and sovereign and has the true authority over our lives, not us. He should be rightly feared. Yet at the same time, Jesus also says to us that while it is right to fear God, you do not have to be afraid. Verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The very hairs on your head are all numbered and known by God. You know how many white hairs I have on my head? I spend, I must have, I must have spent like thousands of hours trying to pluck white hair, what the white hair strands out of my head. What more, the number of hairs on our heads, God knows them all by heart. You do not have to be afraid because God has not forgotten who you are. He knows you inside out. You are worth so much more than creation itself. You are worth so much because you are not just a mere creature without purpose or value. You are God's precious child. And because we are God's children, we are one in Him and we, also, we are also one in Christ. And if we are one with Christ, then how can we be forgotten? Verse 8, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will not be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Sorry, and every... Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now that's some pretty heavy verses right there. How is it that we cannot be forgiven by God? Isn't God supposed to be all-forgiving, all-loving, all-encompassing, slow to anger, patient, how is it there's, a, there's actually a verse in the Bible that says you will not be forgiven if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? 
let me try and explain this with um, a life story, a, a life example. So my dad, my dad's a very stubborn man. Um, he's what we would call a creature of habits. He doesn't like change. He likes things as they are. And if you ever try to change his, his lifestyle, his rituals, his habits, he'll get really angry at you. Um, and he doesn't like change so much that to him, if you ask him what's the top 40 classic hits on the radio today, he'll tell you, take that is on the top 40 classic hits. You guys remember Take That? No, okay, guess not. All right, it was like a really big band in the 90s. Anyway, point, case in point, he's really old-fashioned in that sense. He's had the same set of clothes that he's worn for the last 10 years. I mean, he's, like, he's got three sets of shirts. He's got maybe two pair of pants. It's not that like he's just used one set of clothes and have never washed it, washed it. What I'm trying to say is that he's had the same set of clothes that he's recycled over the course of 10 years. And he has no plan on changing that, right? In fact, he hasn't worn a pair of jeans since 2001. So it really bugs the family sometimes. Like we try and encourage him like, and say, like, you know, Dad, you've got, to, you've got to change, man. You've got to update your wardrobe and keep up with the times. And he's like, no, nah, no, I don't want to change. I like my clothes. I like my torn shirts. Just leave me alone. So one day, it just bucked me so much that he wasn't making a change. And I decided, well, you know what? I'll just go to Kmart. I'll buy him a $10 jeans, a pair of jeans. And I'll just shove it in his face, and he'll have to accept it. And if he still rejects it, that's fine. Just cost me $10, but it was, I thought it was just worth the shot, right? So I went to Kmart, got his size, bought a pair of jeans that cost him $10. Cost me $10, actually, not him. <laughs> and um, brought it back home to him, and I said, Dad, here's a pair of jeans. You need to wear this right now. Like, you just need to wear this. And so he's caught in that situation, and he's like, oh, right, okay. Oh, I'll take your pair of jeans. And he's like, as he's trying it on, he's like grumbling, why do, we, why do I have to change? This is so stupid, this pair of jeans. Like, oh, I don't, I, this is so stupid. Oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> oh, it's not that bad. Right? All of a sudden, there's a flick in his mindset. There's a smile in his face. There's a grin. All of a sudden, he realizes that, oh, they were right all along. This pair of jeans, like, you know, Kmart jeans, they're not that great, right? Like, they're, they're all pretty, you know, ugly designs. <laughs> but it was just for the fact that there was something new that he had. He had change in his life. He was resistant to the change in his mind. Logically, in his head, he resisted the change. But his heart was not hardened to his family. He gave in to his family. Why? Because he loved his family. And the lesson from that is that while we can, while, while people can resist change, can resist the gospel, can resist um, Jesus, the moment you resist, resist the Holy Spirit, then it becomes very hard for your hearts to be changed. And the Apostle Paul's conversion is exactly like that. The Apostle Paul, 
a serial murderer of Christians on the road to Damascus, planning to kill more Christians, meets the risen Jesus. And then what happens? Becomes the greatest advocator and the greatest servant of the gospel. His head was resisting Jesus. His head was resisting the gospel. But when he comes face to face with Jesus, his, he had a change in his heart. So when you speak against the Son of Man, you can criticize and perhaps even reject Jesus, and you can be forgiven. But if you deliberately reject the Spirit, then your hardened hearts will never change. And friends, God is in the business of changing our hearts. For it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that our hearts can be changed. Not our theology, not our Bible knowledge, not how religious we are, but only through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God Himself can and will change us because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we have the Holy Spirit in our lives to change us? We only have it because we have that direct connection and relationship with God through Jesus' work work on the cross that paid for the sins of the entire world. Sin that offends God and His holiness. Friends, this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It is not just about His death on the cross, although that is important. But it is also God's Holy Spirit poured out onto us a gift of Himself to us, for us. He wants to come into our very lives, to be in a relationship with you, to walk with you through the pain and the fear because He sees you and He knows you intimately inside and out. And so we walk this life not needing to fear any public rejection or oppression we might face, As verse 11, Jesus says, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. How are we to respond in moments of tension and crisis when it feels like we don't have the power, we don't have the resources to face people's questions or fierce interrogation? when we are forced either to succumb to the pressures of the world and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Friends, the truth is there is no silver bullet, no smart tactic that can help us out of and and help us maneuver out of any apologetic nightmare. But only by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us exactly what needs to be done in every circumstances. You know the infamous Gandhi? Um, It was once said when Gandhi went to India and he faced the English parliament to fight for India's independence, he spoke with perfect eloquence. He had perfect rhetoric, perfect speech, all without any notes or scripts in front of him. So good was his speech that one of the British diplomats asked him, 
how is it that you're able to speak so eloquently, so fluently, so well without any written scripts before you? Gandhi in response said, I have thought through my convictions, and because I have thought through my convictions, I feel my convictions, and because I have felt my convictions, I can speak and express my convictions without any written notes. And I think that's true for us as Christians as well. As Christians, we need to fill our hearts with God's Holy Spirit, to saturate our thoughts with the gospel, so that knowing Jesus will become second nature to us, so that we may also speak the gospel fluently to others. We may speak the gospel fluently, eloquently, and passionately without any prescribed rhetoric or, or speech or script. See, when God gave Moses the impossible task of facing Pharaoh, Moses being afraid, rightfully, then asked God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and say, to let my people go? Who am I? I am just, I, I, I am just an, an outlaw, illegitimate prince of Egypt. I have no bearing. I have no power. In fact, they might just kill me if I go to Pharaoh. To which God then said to Moses, you will go to Pharaoh and say that the great I am has sent me. And Pharaoh will see all my power, all my glory, just as the whole of Egypt will see as well. And I will be with you, Moses, every step of the way. I will guide you and I will lead my people out of Egypt. God will be with us every step of the way. The Holy Spirit will be with us every single step of the way and in every situation, every circumstances. Now, perhaps it may be a stretch for us to go up to people and say, the great I am have sent me, because that's probably slightly out of context, just probably slightly awkward as well. But maybe we could say, you know, I don't have the answers to every question you have. But perhaps... How about you and I? Let's catch up over a cup of tea. How about rather than bickering and arguing with each other till the cows come home, let me walk beside you as a friend. Let me share my life with you as a friend, as a, as a fellow human being. And maybe as we walk this life together, then you can see what God has done in my life. You can see who I am truly. A sinner who is forgiven by God, and now lives without fear, nor condemnation, and only survives this life by the power of His Holy Spirit. Friends, as I finish off, and I, as I invite Shiyong to come back on stage and lead us in our song in response, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is my conviction, my true conviction from the bottom of my heart for all of us, that the only way we can be on mission to the world is when our lives become that living testament to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There is no other way. And only when we can become that living testament for Jesus Christ, then the world will know who Jesus is.
Only when we say, God, your ways are better than my ways. Your thoughts are better than my thoughts. So Jesus, come and take all of me. Take my life. Take all my fears, all of my failures, all of my emptiness. Empty me so that I can be filled with your Holy Spirit. So that the world may see Jesus not just through our heads, but also through our hearts. Amen.